I've had maybe one good idea in my career, and it was that the venture world is bigger than any one entity can understand. Right, we have this confidence, and that's maybe euphemistic, that a lone ranger on the wild western plains can go and and you know kind of corral up the baddie, but really, I think it it, it takes a posse. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast, where we talk about venture capital through the lens of limited partners. I'm your host, David Weisbert, co-founder and head of venture capital at 10X Capital, one of the most active venture capital firms in the world. The world of LPs is notoriously secret and private, but on this show, influential limited partners investors speak candidly to me about venture capital in 2023 and how LPs are navigating the asset class today. On today's episode, I'm joined by my good friend, Eric Tornberg, co-founder of Village Global, a VC firm with a portfolio that includes Applied Intuition, Multiverse, and Pave. Alongside founding Village Global, Eric is also the co-founder of OnDeck, an accelerator with hundreds of companies now worth over $9 billion. Joining us on our debut episode is Super LP Chris Duvos. Chris is the founder of Ahoy Capital and the Hashtag OpenLP Initiative. Chris is a pioneer in the venture LP space and is an outspoken advocate for transparency in the venture capital GP and LP ecosystem. In today's podcast, we discuss why Chris is still bullish on VC, which VCs have placed the best bets in AI, and whether risk premium still exists in venture capital. Chris has been on a few podcasts, but this interview surfaces a lot of information Chris has never shared before, so it's a must-listen. Without further ado, here's Chris Duvos. So, Chris, you, you've been in the fund manager game for, for a long time. You've had different vantage points. You, you were at Princeton. You were at uh, TIFF. You started Ahoy Capital. What What is struck you about the VC asset class that has grabbed your attention and warranted you spending so much time on it? Oh my gosh. I love venture because it's the idea of the new, the child of the real and the ideal, as Walt Whitman would say. There's so much so much of a relationship, I think, between the kind of progress of humanity and the development of these new enterprises that, you know, as soon as I started working on venture, like the first time I came to California in back in 2001, when I was working for Princeton and started meeting with these companies, I'm like, wow, it feels like we're living a few years in the, in the future. You know, there's this great line. I, I always come back to Walt Whitman. I see in California, the genius of the modern, the child of the real and the ideal, populous cities and the latest inventions, right? And he was talking about that in 1850. And it's, you know, I often kind of refer to California, but what I love about venture is it's, it's really kind of infected the world and what started, you know, 50 years ago in Silicon Valley is now taken root around the country and around the world. And through these new enterprises and initiatives, not only are we creating a lot of wealth, but we're making service delivery more efficient. And maybe I'm a techno utopian, but I believe that like the world is getting to be a better and better place because of the kind of stuff that we get to do on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's a, an amazing description. It's an inspiring one. Uh, how about from a pure, you know, numbers sense? When you're talking to, you know, financially motivated LPs, how should they look at this asset class relative to other class asset classes? How, how should they make sense of it? Ooh, um, from a financial perspective, look. Now I go back to kind of first principles. What I love is behind me on my wall here. For whenever I do zooms, I've got my CFA charter, and that's like a subtle flex because all these all these venture world people kind of run around and they're investing on vibes. But I'm like, at the end of the day, they're numbers that kind of underpin this stuff. And you need to understand that, wow, when things like the discount rate go up or the risk-free rate goes up and all your values and the terminal value, the value of your enterprise shrinks and, and people kind of scratch their head and say, why are the public markets 
so bad to us. And it's because at the end of the day, there are a bunch of people who who look at numbers and, and try to think about things like risk premia and sustainable growth rates and things like that. So kind of to, to answer your question directly, you know, when I talk to LPs, I basically tell them, look, um, in venture capital, you can collect two really rare risk premia because you're buying the longest dated, furthest out of the money option. So one risk premium you're, you're collecting is you're just able to take a longer term bet than the next guy but in terms of horizon. And the other is liquidity, right? Like your money is locked up. And I always say the average venture fund lasts twice as long as the average American marriage. So you've got this really onerous lockup that deters a lot of people and thus should create risk premia, you know, for those who come in. What does that mean? I don't know. There are a lot of people who say S&P 500 plus X number of basis points, whatever, 500 basis points, 750 basis points, a thousand, you know, basis points. I don't know what that number is, but it should be something significant in terms of compensation for the time and risk that you take. So piggybacking on that, on, on the risk premium, as more uh, investors go into endowment style model, what do you see happening to risk premium? Do you see that contracting and could it go to zero or 50 basis points or 100 basis points? points? That's a really important question because the marginal dollar sets the price. And what we saw in the last decade, or really since 2016, is there were a lot of marginal dollars that were attracted to venture. And as a result, kind of prices skyrocketed and that sucks away the risk premium. In fact, there's, a, you know, one of my favorite equations is kind of Buffett's equilibrium, which is opportunity equals value with a capital V minus perception. Right. So the, in the public markets, it says value grows kind of linearly, but perception fluctuates a lot. And as perceptions get big, the opportunity shrinks. And this is the kind of classic value investors equation. Now, what's crazy is in venture, you sometimes get this like recursion between value and perception. And because things are perceived to be hot, they become hot and they actually get some value as a result. But over the long time, there's this kind of mean reversion back to back to intrinsic value. Anyhow, where I was going to all that is. So, you know, there's a lot of dollars that came into the space. A lot of people were seeking endowment style returns. The problem is that people need to invest in a way that's authentic to their, their values and their constraints. And what I mean by that is one of the things that's amazing and having lived in an endowment initially in my LP career, and then in endowment entities thereafter, you have to understand that investing is about optimizing discomfort, and some people have a wider envelope of comfort than you do. And if you're an endowment, you have a multi-generational horizon, right? Like your whole, one of your kind of one of the tenets of Dave Swenson's philosophy was that we have to provide intergenerational equity, right? Tomorrow's students have to be as well off as today's students. And so as a result, you you have to think long-term, you have to act long-term. Meanwhile, there, there was like a lot of hot money that came into the asset class looking for quick returns based on recent past performance, but didn't have that multi-generational, you know, kind of mindset, didn't understand that they were signing up for funds that could last a decade and a half, two decades. And that kind of mismatch creates a lot of tension. It's creating a lot of discomfort today as the tide recedes. You mentioned uh, David Swenson. I know you have a, a connection with him through your undergrad as, as well as in Princeton Endowment. Some would argue, many would argue that what made Swenson uh, profitable and made him a successful investor is that he was right in a non-consensus way. 
why is venture capital still a good asset class today now that everybody believes it to be a good asset class? <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of people have come into venture believing that they could just invest in whatever and get rich, right? It's almost like they believe that, that having an, there's two challenges. One is they believe that indexing venture by being over diversified in my perspective they could achieve outstanding results and again that was based on recent past performance and i think that'll reverse itself and the other is that i think people come in and think that they can pick the best companies the best funds whatever kind of step of the the capital continuum they're on and and they think of they think of themselves as being better than average even though there are a lot of really good people running around and so as a result I think when things are flowing rapidly like they were over the last few years, a lot of mistakes get papered over. But now as the tide kind of recedes, we're going to see, as Warren Buffett would say, who is actually swimming naked. You said a dirty word in, in venture uh, indexing, which is a euphemism for spray and pray. Well, let me give you another dirty word, fund of funds. You run a fund of funds business. You are at Princeton. You've been on all sides of kind of the capital stack. Fund of funds, as everybody knows, everybody knows is dying. Why is it not dying and why is it? Why does it make sense in venture? You know, investing, if you boil it down, really is an information business. And I don't mean information in the, you know, SEC kind of material, non-public way. It's about understanding spaces and having differential insights and having an opinion about things. And I think a lot of people who are poo-pooing fund of funds think they understand the market you know, better than those fund of funds might, which I think in some cases may be true. We live in a large world and people are focused on different things and there's always a trend to disintermediate. But I think for investors who have the humility to understand that they don't understand a particular space as well as people who live in that space, fund of funds can still be an attractive vector for their capital. There are people who play the fund of funds game for quote unquote great access. And I think one of the things that you know, happened over the last half decade or decade was there seemed to be a, less of a premium on access. So for those whose hypothesis was like, we'll access fund to funds and get into these great funds that we couldn't get into otherwise, that did seem a lot less relevant. But ultimately, there are a lot of fund to funds out there who are doing a great job developing differential insights, finding new and exciting managers, being a step ahead of the market. And ultimately, I think that's what you're paying for, as you would with any other intermediary and you have to you know provide value as an intermediary and i think that's what we try to do that's what i think there are a bunch of good practitioners out there who do yeah over the over the past 15 years you've backed some iconic managers you, you were you discovered and were early backers of of, of first round and josh koppelman um, and then you know more recently our friends at house fund and, and xyz when, when you look back at the arc of the, the the managers that you've backed, what is the thread that ties them together, that ties your kind of manager thesis together? You know, this, I, I, I felt like momentarily nostalgic because you, you just transported me back to 2004 <laughs> because, you know, I've had maybe one good idea in my career and it was that the venture world is bigger than any one entity can understand, right? We have this 
this confidence, and that's maybe euphemistic, that a lone ranger on the wild western plains can go and and you know kind of corral up the baddie. But really, I think it it, it takes a posse. Um, and I, I had this. Actually, you can tell from my metaphor that I had this this revelation while I was watching a Western with my son, who was really into Westerns at that moment in his life. And I was like, hey, you know what? Like, how can we figure out people who are leveraging ecosystems rather than staking out on your own and trying to find great companies? How can you punch above your weight? And that's really the thread that when it, when I think about sitting there with Josh Koppelman in kind of 2004, 2005 in the West Conshohocken Marriott, right outside of Philly, Josh was talking about turning venture on its head. And I said, yeah, what you're really talking about is portfolio as community. How can you create a platform that engages your portfolio to create a community? That's the kind of stuff we were talking about in those days. And watching First Round build their platform and having that flourish and become a real resource and First Round becoming a real service provider to its entrepreneurs has been been one of the things that I've really enjoyed watching over the last almost 20 years. And then fast forwarding, you mentioned it will fast forward through like Data Collective and then to XYZ and to, to House Fund. And it's people who are like leveraging, in the case of Data Collective, they had built this incredibly rich and robust um, network that was engaged in what they were doing in the data space and doing AI stuff before it was cool. So like that Ross over at XYZ and the way he was really leveraging, he was really plugged into the power Palantir ecosystems and a couple of other ecosystems to the point where I asked somebody who worked at Palantir once I said, hey, you ever bump into Ross? And he goes, oh yeah, Ross is one of the founders. I'm like, no, he's not. He goes, well, I see him here all the time. He walks around like, I'm like, wow, that's actually rich and robust. And then on the house fund and E14 at MIT and, and Rhapsody, some from recent stuff where people are really leveraging these robust research ecosystems and plugging themselves into new ideas and companies that could have nice moat around them if they, if they can get the technology right, the markets are there for the taking. But boy, these people have a front row seat at some pretty rich innovation factories. Totally. And, and that's a great description. And when you look at managers, you're looking to back in the future in 2023, 2024 and beyond, which ecosystems do you think are most prime or even like types of ecosystems? Is it university focused? Is it company focused like Palantir? Is it sector focused? Is it people who are trying to productize venture in a different way, maybe using data or, or other things? Like, what do you think is, is ripe? Ooh, you know, there's so much that's exciting and interesting out there. Venture tends to move in waves, right? And and there's, I, I found out, I, I used to call this Doors Law. I found out it's called Amara's Law after a professor at Stanford in the 60s. Every important technology is overhyped in the short term and underhyped in the long term, right? And I could give you a bunch of answers and things I'm thinking about and universities and everything has, has pros and cons. Um, what I'm actually really thinking about, this is really four of mine. A good friend of mine is named Peter Stein. He was with me at Princeton's endowment. He ran our, our hedge funds in public markets. And then he was chief investment officer at University of Chicago for a while. And Stein said, look, investing is about two tensions, right? That are, that are kind of interact with each other. One is he said, it's really important to invest in empty rooms. On the other hand, he said, the market, you know, the Keynes's favorite famous line, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid, right? And so how do you balance that tension? And he was, you know, coming from a public markets perspective where it's a little bit more acute. He used to say there's a fine line between being right and being early. Now we get paid to be early, right? And and so this is less of an acute tension, but I, I think about this all the time. How do we invest in empty rooms? How do we invest in places that aren't saturated? And so I actually think that, you know, for me right now to answer the 
question most directly because I don't want to cop out. One of the things I'm thinking a lot about is human computer interaction. Right. Like, and I think of people who've doing, been doing that for a long time, like Manu Kumar over at K9. We invested in his first, in his second fund. And that's been a lot of fun. People today, like Sunil Nagaraj over at Ubiquity, who are thinking about how, and I, I overstate it, like for people in the business, like this is definitely like, they'd call me a clown for using this word, but for people outside it, I think it's a helpful, helpful word. It's like moving towards a singularity, right? And AI is a part of that and hardware is a part of that and sensors are a part of that. And if you think about like really the Tim Berners-Lee Web3, not this like BS branding that Web3 is just crypto. No, Web3 is about the data layer, the computing layer and the interaction layer. A lot of our investments are in that interaction layer, but as crypto grows and flourishes at the data layer and we see AI in the compute layer, boy, I think we're ahead for a 20 year, I just got goose pimples thinking about it. We've got like a 20 year period of really interesting experimentation ahead and some really important world-changing companies are going to come out of that. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. The Limited Partner Podcast is proudly sponsored by AngelList. If you're a founder or investor, you'll know AngelList builds software that powers the startup economy. AngelList has recently rolled out a suite of new software products for venture capital and private equity that are truly game-changing. They digitize and automate all the manual processes that you struggle with traditional fundraising and operating workflows while providing real-time insights for funds at any stage, connecting seamlessly with any back office provider. If you're in private markets, you'll love Angelus new suite of software products. And for private companies, thousands of startups from 4 million to 4 billion evaluation have switched to Angelus for cap table management. It's a modern, intelligent equity management platform that offers equity assurance, employee stock man management, 409A valuations, and more. I've been a happy investor in Angelus for many years, and I'm so excited to have them as a presenting sponsor. So if you're ready to level up your startup or fund with Angelus, visit www.angelus.com slash TLP. That's Angelus slash TLP to get started. Back to the show. One bearish, so I, I, I totally understand the bull case. One bear case for, for the development of those technologies is, is it possible that you know, AI makes it so much easier to start companies in cost-effective ways or, or crypto allows for different capital pools that maybe venture isn't as, as needed in, the, in this new ecosystem, in, in this new world. Uh, you know, we we were worried about that with like, <laughs> you know, ICOs and SAFTs and, you know, all that stuff. And I think that that's a real concern, right? I I, I, I do. But if you think about it, and, and we talked a little bit earlier about intermediaries, right? Like a VC is an intermediary, maybe from some perspectives, an imperfect one, but, you know, no intermediary is perfect. And I think that there's a real value to having knowledgeable folks as stewards of capital. And that may take on different forms over time. You know, do we see, you know, investing DAOs? Like, I don't know. There's, there, there are many, many different ways. I don't think in the same way that, you know, that Silicon Valley used to be the only game in town, but is now, you know, maybe first among a bunch of potential equals or first among strivers. You know, I, I kind of feel the same about venture capital, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and there, there are many, many different ways to, you know, invest in and fund companies, but yet Wall Street remains, um, you know, remains an important money center. Yeah. How, how have you viewed the, the studio model or the incubator model? And how do you view uh, it going forward? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm very 
ambivalent, but not in the negative way, in the like um, etymological way where it means, you know, strong on both sides. I have very, very strong and contradictory viewpoints. I do think studios can be really interesting. You know, as an investor, I like people who can get in early and have big chunky ownership because I think ultimately one of the 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 failure modes or or the mediocrity modes of venture is not owning enough of your winners. I think that happens a lot. I think people are diversified, not diversified in a lot of cases. And so so I think I think studios actually can have really meaningful early ownership and have a really nice position on the cap table. I think some add real value, and I think that that's important. And I love that catalytic ownership, and that's really important. But I also think that every vice is a virtue taken to the extreme, right? And and it, you see in some cases they own too much and they can disincentivize management, right? Like there's a dark side, you know, to every upside potentially. So at the end of the day, it comes down to execution. So I'd say broadly positive, but but kind of keeping an eye out. You mentioned AI. I get asked once a week who the top peer play managers are. Feel free to talk your own book or call out <laughs> call out GPs you'd like to get into. Who are the best AI, AI VCs, whatever that, is, that means to you in the market today? And there's a, there's a bunch of folks and they're really good folks. And I could spend the next 15 minutes naming people. But I'm going to do two completely contradictory things. One I'll, I'll, I'll talk about. One of my favorites is Matt Ako over at Data Collective. And what I love about Matt is the first time I met Matt, or the first time I heard of Matt, I was at a data scientist meetup in San Francisco in 2010 or early 2011. And I asked this guy, I walk up to this guy who looks like a Hagrid from... Um, from uh Harry Potter. He's from Harry Potter. <laughs> and you know, and he's wearing like a leather duster jacket and an Iron Maiden t shirt and he had like a PhD from CMU and a PhD from Stanford and was like chief data scientist somewhere. And I said, Hey, who's doing good investing in this space? And he said, Yeah, there's a guy, but you know, he's not for you. I said, Who is it? He goes, Matt Ako, but he's part of our tribe, not yours. I'm like, what do you mean our tribe? He's like, well, you're a money guy, right? You're a money guy. We're like data scientists. So he's like part of the data scientist tribe. He speaks our language, but you people, people like you won't understand them. And I was like, he, you know, talk about a, you had me at hello moment. So I have to throw out Akko for um, uh, old time's sake. And I think Matt's still doing some outstanding investing. The rest of the team at Data Collective, they built a you know, great team. The fund's gotten a little bit larger, but a great team. And then one actually on the complete other end of the spectrum for me that I've had like two conversations with, but I love the idea of what they're doing. And going back to what I said about leveraging ecosystems is the guys up at the Allen Institute, the AI squared guys. And, you know, they've got real kind of like academics view of AI, which I think some, you know, kind of put some people off, but they've also done some really interesting commercial stuff. They've got a ton of funding and I wouldn't be surprised if some really interesting companies come out of that. That's my kind of like, you know, kind of wacky thought of the day. I haven't invested in those guys. I've had, like I said, I've had two conversations with them, but they're definitely, I've definitely got an eye out for them. And there's a bunch of other people. I feel bad. I feel like, you know, this is an Oscar speech and I'm forgetting the producer of the movie, but, but I, you know, there's just so many good people. I, I don't want to play favorites. And is it, is it your assertion that data scientists are going to lead the pack in terms of the best investors in this next generation? Well, look, I, I think there's a, there's a very interesting study done in the late 90s by Bill David Al for David Al Venture. So like this is now like ancient history, but I still kind of cling to this a little bit. 
And he looked at a bunch of the big waves of venture, you know, kind of throughout the 80s into the early 90s. And what he found was that the specialists, the specialists had a bunch of the early wins, but in in the fullness of time, 80% of the wins went to generalist funds. And I've thought about that a lot. And how does that apply today? How does it not apply? And I do think that, you know, everything is is becoming more specialized, right? And every field of endeavor is becoming more esoteric and, and more challenging for generalists. But what I do think is that what's interesting about the last 10 years of venture, at least, is that we are applying technology to real world problems, right? It's no longer this kind of closed loop of innovation where we're, where we're creating infrastructure, we're actually creating things that are free in the wild relatively quickly. And so what that says to me is, I think that we'll see a ton of innovation and in applications. And that's where maybe the, 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 the long beards of different specialties maybe have the first step, but in the fullness of time, it's the people kind of from industry who are bringing, you know, kind of an idea of how to use AI for particular solution, they start to start to kind of come to the fore, which is also why I think going forward, as much as I love the Bay Area, I think I really do believe that they're in cluster theory and that there'll be very important kind of superstar regions that each have very different areas of expertise and are leveraging technologies to boost to boost their industries. And I'm thinking of finance and media, you know, in New York, I'm thinking about, you know, crypto in Miami and wherever I'm thinking about things like healthcare in the I-65 corridor. Um, you know, there's just so much exciting stuff going on out there. In terms of AI in the short term, do you see it out more as a revenue generator or a cost cutter? Um, you know, I, I started my career out of college as a management consultant. So I feel like every new technology starts its life as a cost cutter. It's like, that's my like reflexive answer. How do you squeeze costs out before going for growth down the road? So I do think in the short term, AI is going to shrink industries in, and that's actually like, people are, are asking me, you know, if there's a recession, what does that mean for venture? I, I think it's actually bullish for venture, broadly speaking, and also for AI, because, because the promise of venture and of AI is to do things better, faster, cheaper. And that's fundamentally deflationary. Great. Let's pivot a little bit to uh, something that you're famous for, micro VCs, solo GPs. Uh, apparently, solo GPs are now out of favor. Uh, how do you look at solo GPs over the next few years? So you say solo GPs are out of favor. And I think that as with everything else in venture, you've got to, you've got to, break the market down into its different pieces. And, and I, I know you, I'm not criticizing the question because I think it's, a, it's, it's the right one, but it's like my stats professor in college said, you always got to watch out for averages because on average, every human has one breast and one testicle. And so I, one thing that I worried about from 2016 forward was the dilettantification of venture capital. There are a lot of people who are kind of coming in and, you know, call them tourists, call them whatever you want. And it was really easy to come in and, and basically monetize your deal flow because there's so much of it. And there's so many dollars looking to come in. It was, it was the perfect time to basically run a two-side market. And I think as the tide goes out, there's less money available. Deal flow has really slowed down. Even though co company formation is still at a pretty hefty pace, it's not at the kind of crazy pace. And I think a lot of people are finding that it's not as much fun um, you know, to do this as it was when the graph was up and to the right. And so I've heard several stories now of people who are kind of hanging up the spikes and, and moving on. 
for me though, it's always been about understanding somebody's psychographics and you really needed to understand them as a person, not as a vehicle for the deal flow that you wanted access to. And so that kind of behavioral footprint first investing is what I hope kept us out of trouble. And so far, my uh, my managers seem to be kind of committed and leaning into the opportunity rather than leaning out like we see so many doing right now. Talk a little bit. You've seen vintages mature, evolve, and sometimes break up over time and franchises. Talk to me about the life cycle of a venture fund. What are the predictable pain points that people go to? And what are some ways to avoid those predictable pain points for uh, franchises? You know, so I have spent a decent amount of time in my life investing in fund ones and, or fund twos, whatever, like, you know, early on. And it was born out of this hypothesis that I formed that fund three was like the optimal fund because it's where your growing experience intersected with your declining hunger. And I was actually talking to Charles Hudson the other day and and he said something, I, I think of him as a really hungry guy and a really smart guy. And he was mentioning that he was raising fund five or had raised fund five. And I said, you know, it feels to me like fund five is the new fund three, right? Because the, the cadence has gotten so much faster and, 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 but also liquidity times have stretched out. So, you know, what, the, the big thing for me has always been the moment at which people get their first big carry check, right? That tends to, if there were any tensions beforehand in partnerships or even in people's, you know, in solo GP's own kind of motivations, that's where they tend to, to crack. And, you know, one of the things that we really try to lean in on is understanding people who are, you know, kind of true believers. Like I think of people like Josh Koppelman, like Josh kind of retired you know, five times already, but Josh is a fund entrepreneur, right? Like his vision for first round and the team that he's built outstanding, you know, senior people, Bill and, and Todd Jackson, Mecca, and, you know, all those guys, Kaylee, they're all like awesome, successful people who are like leaning into the journey and excitement of entrepreneurship rather than here to make a quick buck. And so th that's a big kind of area of fracture. And then the next thing is like the generational transition. That's something that has been rarely handled well. In fact, I heard a story once, I don't know if I've ever told this story, but I heard a story once that when they were building the offices that A16Z are now in on Sand Hill Road, the developer, uh, John Ariaga, invited Sequoia, he called up, he called up Don Valentine and said, Hey, would you guys like this office? And he says, Oh yeah, let me check it out. I'll, I'll have some, some, you know, people go over. And so, and this is like 2008, 2009, right? So Mike Moritz and Doug Leone go over there, right? Two guys who have made more money for people than almost anybody on the planet. And they go over there and they're looking at the plans with Ariaga and they're like, maybe we can move this around. And, you know, Ariaga was like very fixated on the design apparently. And they're like, maybe we put a weight room here. And he was like, no, get out. And he apparently called up Don Valentine and says, the next time I call you with an opportunity, don't send a couple of associates over here. <laughs> <laughs> to oh mess my with God. my design. And so, you know, Sequoia is a firm that's handled tra generational transition exceedingly well, but 
you know, one of my managers once said to me, he goes, look, you're investing in us and you're investing in us as investors and anything else you get is frosting. And I'm just like, that's really interesting. And that was a fund that, you know, had a botched transition. And then I look at first round and I look at Josh, who's an organization builder and how he's done such a great job of kind of handing the baton. And, and as people have transitioned out as, you know, they've, they've kind of reached different points in their lives and watching first round run more like a business than a partnership, if that makes sense. That's been really instructive to me. One quick comment on that is one thing that's fascinating because it's one thing if you're Andreessen or you're Thrive and you're in fund three, but you see this, you know, fund eight vision and it's to get significant scale and go much bigger. That, that's one thing. It's another thing if you've already crushed it and you're not scaling your USV, your first round, but you're just going to continue to be excellent. It's another thing to have that motivation to do the same thing you've been doing, but continue to just crush. That, that, that is really admirable. And look, the OG in that is benchmark, right? And the question is like, there there is this law of financial levitation, but that kind of runs up often against the hard reality of arithmetic for the LPs. But then there's a lot, like 15 years ago, I wrote this blog post called LPs and their SUVs. The whole idea of it was, for a long, long time, like think back to the late 90s, the number one repeat buy rate car was a Chevy Suburban. Like it wasn't Hondas, it wasn't Toyotas. It was like 95% of Chevy Suburban buyers, their next car is a Chevy Suburban. And why is that? It's because they had eight, if you have eight kids and four kayaks and, you know, all the stuff, that's the only car for you. Right. And so if you're, you know, I, I kind of poo poo like the big funds because I think their arithmetic is impossible um, to generate the kinds of returns that I want. But there are a lot of people out there for whom those kinds of returns work. Right. If you're and, and these are all good investors like Washington State Investment Board, like, great. You know, you're putting out one hundred trillion dollars a year or whatever you're putting out and you want, you know, kind of exposure. That's that's what you got to do. And, and not to you know kind of poo poo that. But so I understand the law of financial levitation and there's something you know, to it there, but man, the guys who, and guys gender neutral who stay in like a spot because your fund size is your strategy. The old Mike Maples on your fund size is your strategy, man. If you just want to pursue that strategy and crush it and you don't need to have a trillion, the trillion dollar fund for whatever reason, people have trillion dollar funds. Like, man, that's the kind of person I want to back forever. So, so what happens to these large funds? Uh, if you had a crystal ball, or if you probabilistically look at it, what are the odds that these large funds return LP capital? You know, I used to be a real cynic about a lot of things, and maybe I've, I've mellowed with age. I was around for the 01 bust. And I was like, oh my God, these funds are never going to return money. And every quarter, like top-notch funds, funds that people would like fall all over themselves to get into, we get their quarterly statements at Princeton. They were down like 10%, 8% the next quarter, 15%. The next, it was like asymptoting to like 0.2x. And I'm like, these guys are never going to return money. But you look at the actual, I just was looking at the the benchmarks for the that era of funds and actually the median return ended up being around a 1x like the the median fund returned capital and i'm like wow you know what people hustled right and and made it work and by the way if you look at like your opportunity cost of that capital putting it in the public markets maybe you actually even turned out ahead so you know Seven years ago, if you had asked me that question, I'm like, oh, my God, all these guys are going to lose their shirts. But, you know, what? there are a lot of smart, smart people running these funds. And there's a lot of really great entrepreneurs in these portfolio companies. And, yeah, they won't 
you know, who knows, my crystals balls in a shot, but if, if the environment continues to be tough, you know, maybe they won't drop, you know, a six X fund on our heads. Um, but you know what, they'll probably do. Okay. Yeah. As, As someone who thinks a lot about intrinsic value, I'm curious how you reflect on crypto over the past few years, right? Talk about momentum, creating its own momentum and, and talk about the idea of, you know, if someone is so focused on intrinsic value, I'm, my instinct is they're probably skeptical or they've been skeptical of crypto yet some firms like paradigm and others have returned you know billion plus billion plus dollars you know seemingly speculating mostly on bitcoin right um, yep. and so i'm curious how you how you've approached it and how you think about it going forward you know i i, I think it's crazy that my son you know who's going to college owned crypto before i did personally um and he's i mean you know it was actually off-putting to me to watch him like go on Reddit and then go trade crypto. Um, and I'm like, this is insane. But to your point, there was a lot of speculation and a lot of crap. But I also think, again, going back to the Tim Berners-Lee kind of view of the future of the web, we've been experimenting with the data layer here. And I think that there have been some really important companies that are that have been or undertakings let's call them that that have been that have been pursued over the last few years that have created some intrinsic value there's also been some speculation where people made some money and you know what like i i'd rather be lucky than good i guess so you know kudos to all those guys in there you know some of these guys are both lucky and good so who am i to to begrudge it but i think in the main there are a lot of people who you know got snookered into it chasing momentum but that's why some of the people you mentioned you know kind of seasoned players thoughtful they have an informational advantage and look the innovators are followed by the imitators who are followed by the idiots as as buffett says and if the innovators are making money on the backs of the idiots then then that's financial darwinism so uh, par- parts of what you're talking about is asymmetry of certain bets. And I made a big mistake. I did not invest in Bitcoin. A very smart friend told me about it. I didn't understand it. And I decided and I ventured not to do that again. And, and I invested some money in Ethereum. Of course, I should have invested more. <laughs> what are some asymmetric kind of, what are some uh, hacks in the matrix of venture capital that uh, don't seem like they should make sense, not intuitive, but they, that in retrospect, you've kind of learned these these ways of making money as, as, as a venture capitalist and, of course, as, as an investor in venture capital ecosystem. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll talk about two things. One that I've executed, one that I wish I had executed better and I'm trying to execute better on. So the first one that, I, that I've like really tried to focus on kind of throughout my career is a lot of people come at venture chasing performance or using performance as a leading indicator, but it's really a lagging indicator, right? And this has always been tricky for me as I look at funds because I think, wow, you know, everybody is is looking at, you know, outstanding performance of, of XYZ fund, but the people who, you know, who made those investments are at different points in their careers and lives and maybe even cycling out of those firms. And the firm is five times as big as it was when those bets were made. And so turning the, you know, the evaluation pyramid on its head and instead of starting with performance, starting with the people and understanding, you know, who, you know, to whom you're entrusting your money, right? Because, you know, at my, at my level, and we do some direct investing, but mostly we do fund investing, um, and understanding, you know, the the people who are going to deploy the blind pool and their psychographics and what kinds of risks they're willing to take and what their differential insight is. And, 
you know, understanding their sustainable competitive advantage and the repeatability and all, you know, of, of their actions and their ability to learn and integrate feedback. That's something that's been really important to me historically that I think is maybe a little bit off market. I think we spend too much time chasing performance and chase, chasing momentum. The one that the one that I'm trying to execute better on, and this goes back to my, you know, my Peter Stein from Princeton thing, um, is this question of investing in empty rooms. And I think today we're spending a lot of time talking about equity and inclusion and diversity. And um, and and there's so much data and the data is increasing and it's both hard data, but also anecdotal that there's a lot of opportunity in things that don't look like venture has looked like in the past. And it's also, you know, just the economic theory of it is like when, when a space is underfunded, the prices are more, more attractive. And in a go-go market that, um, that, that can get lost because the rising tide is lifting all boats. But I think, you know, looking ahead, maybe finding people who don't, who are underrepresented minorities or, or women, there's really exciting opportunities in the types of businesses that people who, I've got four strikes against me. I'm stale, male, pale, and Yale, right? <laughs> like, I don't really understand the world. Uh, you know, 50-year-old white dude, come on, man, who's been around <laughs> forever. There, there's a lot that's going on in the world today that's a lot more interesting than my, you know, tainted eye can see. So I think that, I think that's something that we're looking into increasingly. I've done a little bit, but there's a lot of opportunity there. Totally. Wait, you get involved early in these funds and the first fund and the second fund, and you ask a manager, hey, what do you want fund five to, to look like? What, what are good answers to that question or answers that you're looking for? And what are non-obvious bad answers or answers for you personally you're not looking for? So there are many different answers that are good answers. I used to think that there was a single formula for success, but having done this for a long time, I realized that there are many, many different ways for people to to flourish. And when I ask people what Fund 5 looks like, what I'm really looking for is an answer that's authentic to who they are and how they're thinking about the organization. I think about, you know, when I was a strategy consultant, our kind of guru at the firm was a guy named Michael Porter, who's a strategy guru at Harvard Business School. And, and Porter has this definition of strategy. Strategy is an integrated set of choices that inform timely action. And so when I look at a, what, how people articulate a fund five, I want to make sure that there is an integrated set of choices that allows them to get there. If it's just, you know, them and a partner and they want to triple the fund size, that might not you know, or, or quintuple the fund size, whatever the number is, that might not make as much sense as them thinking about, okay, in fund three, we add, you know, a younger person and train them up over the course of fund three and then make them a principal in fund four and, you know, founder in fund five, you know, that's the thinking about that, thinking about your fund as a thriving entity rather than, you know, kind of a stale partnership is, is a big one for me. And, but the, and that's more important than the destination. 
another thing is a lot of people think the answer is, oh, stay small. And and for me, I have a strong bias for that. The benchmark OG slash, you know, kind of first round slash USV. While that means the arithmetic will be in your favor, there are actually some interesting ways to deploy capital at larger scale in very profitable ways that you can do authentically. You just need to build the organization of the infrastructure to do that in kind of a thoughtful and intentional way. Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, models at scale, you look at something like Y Combinator and it feels like it broke all the rules, right? It, it's a high volume model. It's, you know, investing at scale. It's, you know, not a ton of diligence. It's super early. It's special economics. Um, it, it just looks very different than the, you know, the models that we were just talking about. Do you think it's, it's an outlier or do you think that you'll, you'll back or we'll see another model that takes similar, you know, high volume scale? special economics that, you know, can be close to as successful? So there's a lot to love about Y Combinator and they were in the right place at the right time. And, and, you know, you could say that they, you know, grew up with this, you know, moment in venture capital and they were in the right place at the right time. They, you could say they, they fed it. You could say it's impossible to think of venture in the, really in the like kind of last 15 years without thinking of Y Combinator, you know, but they also were responsible for a lot of things that I think quite frankly were unhealthy for the ecosystem. It just weren't obvious because the, the era was, you know, kind of up and to the right. I have behind closed doors, people, they're, there are people that I think very highly of as investors who think that safes are the worst thing that's ever happened, you know, to, to venture capital. And then obviously the, the, all the demo day BS, basically what Y Combinator did was taught startups how to maximize, not optimize valuation. And that works in an ultra power law era of cheap capital, but does it work over a more normal economic cycle? And there, there are definitely questions like that you can ask. At the same time, you know, Y Combinator has done a stunning amount for the idea of entrepreneurship, right? So kudos to them. So love them or hate them, there's something. The thing I'd say, you know, and I'd also say like, man, Y Combinator is a great business for Y Combinator. But I think if, as I've seen, I think if, if you actually look at especially in more recent years as the courts have gotten really big, there's a lot of a lot of companies that are really like mediocre in there. And as the tide goes out, maybe we'll see how many of those, you know, kind of succeed or, or not. And I do suspect that, you know, there there's some there's some, you know, there are gonna be some great companies and they might even be like disproportionately good. But man, you know, I'd love to teach a class someday why combinator and its discontents. Well, one uh, one unintentional consequence I saw the of the safes and the converts are that now that valuations have gone lower, people are getting into a lower entry prices than they would have at the time. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. The, the one entrepreneur complained to me that they didn't actually even understand because they had all these safes layered in with different different caps and different discounts. They didn't even really understand their cap table, and. Uh, and when everything converted, they actually ended up owning a lot less of the company than they thought they would. And, and I think that that's, that's a risk. I, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of price rounds. I think we all need to have the courage to price. And entrepreneurs have to have that humility. And speaking of courage, you mentioned direct investing. One of the most difficult things to do as a family officer, institutional investor. What are some advice that you have for, for family offices or institutions starting to do direct investing? alongside funds you know the, the what i'd say is um is it's really important to 
trust your partners and trust them implicitly. Um, and I have seen a lot of direct investors try to get cute with their direct investing and pick and choose. Um, and there is a lot of selection bias and you got to make sure that, um, you know, somebody once said to me, finding LPs to do my deals is like, you know, it's like walking my dogs. I take my, you know, my B companies out. Um, and so, so if you, you know, but that again, comes back to trust. If you believe that you're with a trusted partner is going to show you a companies, um, you know, you, I think history would teach that if you pick and choose, there's a good chance that you might miss the one breakout. And this is such a breakouts business. Um, you know, Warren Buffett always says there's no called strikes in investing, but man, that is, that is the, you know, far from the truth in venture because if you miss the one great deal in a in a year or in a portfolio um you know you your results go from being outstanding to being mediocre yeah closing question here you've been a um proponent of the open lp movement you you and uh (laughs) your friend beezer our our friend um the um trying to bring more transparency to the lp ecosystem uh let's talk about that in, in closing where do you think that the ecosystem will be more transparent and where do you think it will, you know, uh, not be as tran- transparent as say venture has been over the past, you know, couple decades? Like one thing I've been curious about is why aren't venture firm returns public? You know, there's uh, it would surprise a lot of people perhaps uh, on, on both on both areas. So where do you think we'll have more transparency, and where do you expect it to be, you know, similarly opaque? Yeah. So uh, you know, and and Beezer has been absolutely the best. Uh, you know, she's really spearheaded the Open LP movement and. And really, you know, I used to do a lot of blogging, but blogging was very static. And Beezer really picked up the torch and and brought OpenLP into social media and has been just such a, a star, I think, in the in the business. And so she's the best and, and kudos to her. Um, you know, look, I, I think, and I'm maybe going to sound a cynical note here, I think that as hard as we try, it's going to remain really hard to bring transparency to venture because the people who want transparency from the GP side, like haven't earned it. And the people who've earned it haven't, you know, don't, don't have an interest in it. I think also part of that is there's a lot of delayed gratification in venture. And I look at some of my funds and it's amazing how the 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 value moves in quantums and depending on what t- you know what time you take your snapshot it you know it can uh it can really affect people's perception of you and so um so i i kind of you know i'm talking out of both sides of my mouth in a sense but i think that there needs to be new metrics and what i am very optimistic about is we're seeing kind of a parallel development in you know kind of secondary markets we're seeing you know more real time marking of companies gps are getting more aggressive about marking their companies uh dynamically and so as we see you know venture price more dynamically and, and be less a victim of sale prices. Maybe we do see some of that, but at the very least, I want to see like open, authentic dialogues between LPs and GPs and what works and what, how we can each help each other to support entrepreneurship. That's a great place to, to note. I feel like we've, uh, we've done a little bit on that, on that podcast. Thanks to you, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks. You guys are the best. Thanks this is Chris. super fun.